You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to the live stream. It's been a couple of weeks since I've done one of these teaching videos. We'll be looking at some issues of how to do better in our teaching of children the Bible, how to help them practice and learn good skills when it comes to interpreting their Bibles. And I've had so much feedback about these um, this series that I'm doing. So I'm going to do uh, at least a couple of more. I've got some ideas for at least two, possibly three more videos that I'll do in this series. I did a super stream with Elisa Childers, Natasha Crane, and my ministry partner, Monique Dusan, and we did kind of a, a deep dive of just asking a lot of questions about the Orange Curriculum. And as I said in my previous teaching video, um, the Orange Curriculum is very influential. It reaches about a million students a week in our churches. So it's not a small thing. It is a very influential Sunday school curriculum. And so we just kind of started asking some questions about the curriculum. And um, I have been doing a deeper dive into the curriculum in these videos. This is the third in a series of videos that I am doing in trying to um, primarily educate people um, about how to do better in our efforts to teach children the Bible, but then doing a deeper dive into the Orange curriculum. So the first week uh, we looked at, I did a video called, That's Not How That Works, <laughs> and uh, really tried to lay out some general principles of sound Bible interpretation and looking at how meaning comes from the author. And if we're going to teach children the Bible properly, then we need to orient them toward investigating what the author meant. We cannot turn the Bible into moral storytelling. And then I followed that video up with a second video called The House is on Fire, where I went into, you know, a, just a deeper dive. I looked at um, some statistics about students walking away from their faith. And then we also looked at that week's installment of the Orange Curriculum for the first through fourth graders. So again, this is the third in the series of teaching videos that I'm doing. And so I'm going to continue that conversation here in just a few moments as I continue to try to give detailed examples about these issues because I really want to equip and empower all of you because I've received so many emails from people that are like, hey, I'm going to go have a sit down with my children's pastor. I'm going to go have a sit down with our elder team or our lead pastor. So I want to equip you to how to have those conversations with very specific examples so that you can even maybe potentially pass on these podcasts to your pastor, to your kidmin um, minister to help them understand um, more details behind your concerns. So we will continue those discussions here. 
But before I get into all of that, um, many of you sent me a email yesterday telling me about the email blast that was sent out from Orange. I guess a lot of you subscribe to their emails. So there was an email blast sent out um, via their parent Q um, email stream. And uh, parent Q is the component of the orange curriculum that communicates with parents. I thought the byline was kind of interesting. It was something to the effect of helping you become the parent you've always wanted to be. And it, it is um, equipping emails where they send parents resources. A lot of the resources are kind of um, helping your child grow and develop psychology, relationship building. Yesterday's parent Q email was focusing on uh, the Enneagram. So that was a little bit interesting. So we're going to talk about that very shortly here at the top. So this was the parent cue that came out yesterday and they had a little teaser about the art. And then the they're asking the question of your Enneagram type. How does that, um, what does that tell you about your parenting style? And so they went through each of the, the numbers on the Enneagram scale. And then they also had some other resources there. And then this is the byline thought was so interesting at the bottom here is be the parent you want to be. And I guess parent Q is from, from orange is trying to help equip you to, um, to fulfill that, that dream. So this is the article that was attached to that email blast. And I just want to show it to you really quick here. Um, again, this is from the parent queue that's published by Orange, what your Enneagram type says about your parenting style. So it's a short article here and here's all the types. And I'm making a level of assumption that uh, people watching this stream know basically what the Enneagram is. It purports to be a uh, personality test and um, that it will test. It, it, this is the common symbol for it. If you've ever seen this symbol and this circle, and it has the nine different types uh, on the Enneagram uh, scale and you take a test and assessment, sort of if you've ever taken like the Myers-Briggs or the Strengths Finder, the Enneagram is put forward as another type of personality test. Um, I am not a fan <laughs> of the Enneagram, um, but this is nothing new with Orange. They have promoted the Enneagram for several years. They've had workshops about it at their annual conferences. Um, sometimes pastors are required to take the Enneagram test in as part of their application process to come on board on a staff and and some churches that you know really are um, trying to be in sync with the orange curriculum uh, will definitely put an emphasis on even having meetings trainings uh, uh, based on the enneagram and integrating that into their culture as a staff. Uh, I, I like I said I am not a fan of the enneagram. Um, I have basically three reasons. I'm not going to go into detail here. Um, but uh, my first reason is that, quite frankly, I think that 
the Enneagram has demonic origins. Um, I think that's a pretty well established fact. Um, I'm going to refer you to a great conversation between uh, my friend Marsha Montenegro and Elisa Childers. Marsha was on Elisa's podcast a while back. So if you go look for the Elisa Childers podcast number 81, they do an in-depth discussion about the history of the Enneagram. And Marsha pretty much uh, answers practically every question you can imagine related to the Enneagram. And Marsha was really the one who was out in front on the Enneagram in, from the beginning and um, trying to alert people about it. And I'm going to tell you quite candidly, in the beginning, when Marsha started commenting on the Enneagram, I really was a skeptic about it. I thought, I think she's just making a mountain out of a molehill. I don't really think that this is something to be concerned about. But when I sat down and started actually researching it for myself and started understanding uh, with more careful discernment and looking at the details of Marsha's research, I became persuaded that I think she's probably right. And so again, you can go check out Elisa's conversation with Marsha. Marsha used to be uh, an astrologer. She was like the president of the American Astrology Association or something. Marsha, please forgive me if I don't have that quite right, but it's something to that effect. Um, so my first reason that I am not a fan of the Enneagram is that it it, it has demonic origins. I, I am deeply troubled by that. Uh, my second reason I am not a fan of the Enneagram is that I'm I'm actually fairly skeptical uh, that there's much science behind it. Um, and uh, I we did a discussion. Well, Monique did the discussion because I was sick that day. But we did a discussion with Jay Mendenwald, who's an apologist, and he has a background in research psychology. And he has done some work on trying to measure the reliability and validity of the Enneagram. And so we have a podcast about that on our All the Things podcast page. So you can go check that out. Uh, go on All the Things website and look for the Enneagram. Is the Enneagram a valid psychological tool? And so, yeah, I am a, I am not persuaded. Uh, and I know there's a lot of claims out there about its reliability, but I am not persuaded that it is actually uh, scientifically established uh, to be a valid measuring tool. Um, and uh, my third reason that I am not a fan of the Enneagram is that it can become for some uh, a gateway into exploring more progressive voices. It is not uncommon for people who go down the path of progressive Christianity and begin exploring Richard Rohr, that the, the entry point to that is the Enneagram. And the Enneagram is something that is highly promoted in progressive circles, not all, but many. And I'm not saying that everyone who uses the Enneagram is a progressive, but it is not uncommon for that to be kind of a doorway to that person exploring other things. So personally, I think the Enneagram is operates for many people as a substitute Holy Spirit, but that's another conversation for a different day. So 
you can go check out these resources and weigh them out for yourself and see what you think. But Orange promoting the Enneagram is nothing new. They've been doing that for quite a while. So those are some brief comments and resources for you to consider. Okay, now let's get into the second topic I want to talk about in this podcast. And again, continuing the conversation about um, better Bible interpretations. Today, I want to focus mostly on uh, applications, how to get better applications when you study the Bible. And I think that this is something that is not talked about enough. Uh, and so I want to walk us through some issues related to that and some some ideas that I've developed over the years related to um, de- helping people develop better applications. Because here's what often happens is you can listen to a sermon and, and it can actually be um, fairly decent in its content. And then you get to the application part and the whole thing can kind of go into the ditch (laughs) and then it's it becomes really troubling and and problematic so you not only want to do sound bible interpretation but you also want to work on giving sound application of the bible so i want to walk us through a few principles And then we're going to look at a couple of examples and use those principles to evaluate the examples and and try to make this kind of a a, a bit of a learning project together. Um, I'm going to see if I can show you my screen here. So I'm just going to do a quick review um, that our overall goal, if we're going to have sound Bible interpretation is that we want to ask the question, what does the text mean? What does it mean for me? What we do not ask is what does it mean to me? Because that is a question that comes out of postmodernism and it makes it seem like everyone can have their own private interpretation. That's not what we're up to as Christians. As historic Christians, we are asking a fundamentally different question. We are asking the question, What does the text mean? Uh, And we are trying to look at the author's meaning. We are trying to ask the question, what did the text mean in the author's mind when he wrote it? And we want to get as close as we can to that. And so when we look at the author, that's our focus. Our focus is not on us and our felt needs and our modern context Our focus first is on the author. And what I mean by the author is both the human author and the divine author of the the Holy Spirit, okay? And then that that meaning is conveyed through the written word. It's conveyed through the text. And then it was read by the original audience. Now, what's tricky for us as American Christians in the 21st century is that there is a significant amount of cultural distance between us as the modern readers and that original audience and the original author. Now, I think that there's ways to overcome this cultural distance, but it can be tricky. And so I want to um, focus our attention on stating our goal very clearly 
that what we are trying to do is look for the the author's original meaning. Okay, so we're asking the question, what did the author mean? We are not asking the question, what does this mean to me? Okay, so that's kind of a review from the first part of this teaching series. Now let's look at um, some principles for how to get better Bible inter interpretations. This is really what I want to try to cover today. So principles for better applications. Okay, I'm kind of begging you. <laughs> We've made a slide. Please don't wreck all your hard work on interpreting the scripture with sloppy applications. I see this happen so much. The, a pastor will do all this great groundwork and heavy lifting and helping me get back into the author's context and historical cultural context. But then we get to the application and it's like, wow, we just took some giant leap and the application isn't connected to the, the text itself. So applications are not a free for all. Okay. This is, this is part of what I want you to understand. The guiding principle for an application is that it should flow directly from the meaning of the text. So when you look at the text in context, forward and backward of what the author is saying, the application should flow directly from the meaning of that text. It should, you should not have a sense when you're listening to a sermon, like, okay, I understand the text, but this application seems totally disconnected. It should just be the natural outflow of the meaning of the text. If it's not, then you might be in trouble. So step number one to get better applications from the Bible is to ask, what was the application for the original audience? You got to take some time to think about this. Okay. What was the application for the original audience? Nail that down. Think about that question. Try to figure that out. Okay. So, um, when you're doing that, what you have to know is that something closely approximating that application for the original audience is probably the same application that applies to us today. Again, the application should just naturally flow out of the meaning of the text. So whatever that original application was for the original audience, you should think in your mind, okay, something closely approximating that is probably the application for us today. Another key principle to understand is that most passages, especially if they're in like Old Testament history um, and some in New Testament history, most passages do not have a direct action-oriented application step other than the Bible wants you to think more correctly about who God is and who you are. 
This is often often the, the, the key application is renewing your mind, thinking more in a biblical, historic framework. That's often the application. It's not um, the I know that it's popular to say, well, the Bible is an instruction book for our lives. And it is that at times, but it is not merely that. First and foremost, the scripture wants to shape how we think. It wants to shape and influence how we think about God and how we think about us, how we think about the future, how we think about our relationship to God. So when we try to turn a passage um, into a practical three steps of an application, nine times out of 10, that is probably an inappropriate application. That is probably an inappropriate use of scripture. So we need to, to be very aware of that. Second major step. So the first major step is ask, what was the application for the original audience? The second step is ask, where do I see parallel situations in the audience I am presenting to? In other words, if I'm teaching on a passage of scripture, what parallel situations do I see between the original audience and who I am giving this talk to? If that's teenagers in my homeschool co-op group, if that's my own kids, if that's my small group or my Sunday school class, then you want to think about two or three very specific situations where this principle would apply. You want to paint that picture. So often I hear pastors, when they get to the application part, not only is it disconnected from the text, but it is so vague in general that the person doesn't know how to actually do anything to live it out. They don't actually know what they are supposed to do or how they are supposed to think differently. So this is the most common mistake that, that um, I've seen. And so what you want to do in thinking about better applications is to look for genuinely parallel situations. So if the Apostle Paul is talking about marriage, the application is probably a parallel situation today related to marriage. That's how that goes. If it's, it's a, if it's a, a passage in Genesis about God wrestling with um, Jacob, that might not have an immediate action step application. The application there might be more one of shaping your thoughts, shaping your worldview. And so if the pastor all of a sudden is, is trying to put you in the position of Jacob, that's probably not an appropriate application, okay? So again, we have to think about what was the application in the mind of the original author? That's the application that we want to look for in our own um, parallel situation. Okay, so those are just some basic principles to help you get better applications of the Bible. So now we're going to look at a passage together. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2. 
And then after we look at Acts chapter two, what we're going to do is watch a couple of selections from a Bible lesson from the Orange Curriculum from a couple of weeks ago based on Acts chapter two. And then we're going to apply these principles to, to those lessons. Okay, so first let's look at Acts chapter two. And this is a passage about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming on the Christians at Pentecost. So we're not going to read this whole chapter because we would this live stream would end up being two hours if we walk through all of this. But what we note here is that uh, there's a lot of historical context. When the day of Pentecost came, um, they were all there in the upper room together. The Holy Spirit comes over them. There's tongues of fire. People start getting saved from all parts of the ancient Roman Empire. The church is immediately multi-ethnic. People, th the outsiders think that the apostles are drunk. And then Peter stands up and gives a sermon. And what kind of sermon does he give? Well, it's, it's a, actually a survey of a lot of salvation history. He's recounting salvation history and how Jesus is the Messiah. He's the, the fulfillment of the great hope that people had. So when we get down to this section, when the people heard this in verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your, of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Okay, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily to those who were being saved. Now, if we were to turn the page here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. We would see that the very next page is Acts chapter 3. And what happens? We, we notice that there's an immediate backlash. Peter and John heal a lame beggar, and then they immediately get arrested. Okay? And uh, Peter preaches another sermon and calls the people to repentance. And then they get arrested in chapter 4, and they're behind. They're in front of the Sanhedrin. They're told, stop preaching in the, this name. And they said, we can't do that. We must obey God rather than men. Um, you know, we cannot help, verse 20, but speaking about all that we have seen and heard. Okay. Then they were released and, and they start singing, praising God for um, what he's done 
and all of this. Now notice verse 32 in chapter 4. Notice how it repeats some of the themes we just read in chapter 2. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they started, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to everyone, to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, we're going to turn the page. What's the very next page? Ananias and Sapphira. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And then it goes through this story where they end up dropping dead. Now, what are we supposed to learn from this larger context? Is that the, in those early days, people were sharing. They were selling property. The wealthy had property. They were selling it and providing for the needs of of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and Luke wants to compare and contrast Barnabas and his um, obedience with Ananias and Sapphira and their lies. Okay, so this is just a, a very basic survey of this big chunk in Acts chapter two. All right, so how would I, and if, if you're on the stream and you wanna participate in the fun, so here's the question is, what is the big idea? And you can type it in the chat for this chunk of scripture of Acts chapter two to four. You know, what is the big idea? There was Pentecost. There was the sermon. There's the statements about sharing. Then Peter and John heal the, the, the um, crippled man they preach a sermon, they get arrested, they get let go. Then we have more statements about sharing. And then there's Ananias and Sapphira. Like, what is the big idea of what is happening in that chunk of text? If you have any thoughts about it, you can write it in the chat and um, let me know. And I'll, I'll just keep talking here for a little bit, but write it in the chat. What is the big idea? If you were to to think about like writing a thesis statement or writing out in one sentence, what would that main idea be for Acts chapters two to four-ish? What would that be? So think about that. Because we're asking the question, what did the text originally mean? What was the original meaning of the text to the authors? What was... Luke trying to communicate. Okay, so here's some thoughts. What we see is the great unity in the church in Acts chapter 2. And people start coming into the church. Holy Spirit is moving, right? There's great unity. But then there's an immediate threat from outside the church that Peter and John get arrested and that 
threatens to disrupt the unity. But then what we see is God, God's hand in that and, and, and quelling that, that difficult situation. And then we read again of great unity of how the believers are helping one another. But then when we turn the page to chapter five, we see another threat to unity. We see Ananias and Sapphira. So there's kind of this accordion. And if we were to keep going, we would see Luke's flow of unity, threat to unity, unity, threat to unity. And, and Luke is really wanting to paint this picture of the young church that, you know, what's going to happen? Um, is it, is it going to survive? Uh, will it be uh, put down by the Jews or by the Romans? What's, what's happening here? So there, there's this, this kind of thread through these early chapters of the book of Acts of um, unity, possible threats to, to, to unity, um, unity, threats to unity. Let's see, Allison, who took my hermeneutics class, is adding in the beginning of the church and life as believers with the Holy Spirit. That's good. That's another critical thread in, in this section. Okay. So now that we've got some kind of ideas under our belt about what this means, think about what is the application to this section? How does this, what would we think about applying this section? Now, let's remember our principles of what we're doing. So our first principle is that we want to look for an application that flows out of the meaning of the text. So we don't want to fall in a ditch somewhere and all of a sudden start turning the Bible into Aesop's fables and doing moral storytelling. So we're looking for something that flows immediately out of the text. We want to ask, what was the application to the original audience? So if you have any thoughts about that, put it in the chat. If, if you were an early Christian reading this section from the book of Acts, what would be the likely application in that scenario? So think about that. Think about what, oops, that's me. So, so you can just type that into the chat. What do you think the original Christians would have thought about the application? Okay. So you can put that in the chat if you have any thoughts about it. So what we're thinking about is, is, is this telling them like three steps to, you know, living a more wealthy life? Uh, is this, um, uh, is the, is the main application that they would think about uh, something related to a particular doctrine, maybe potentially in Peter's sermon, it might connect to our understanding of, of what must we do to be saved. That would be a legitimate application of the text. That when Peter, when, when they ask Peter on Pentecost, what must we do to be saved? Peter's response is repent be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. Well, 
that would be a pretty direct application for us today. You know, that when we present the gospel, maybe we should tell people, you know, what they need to be, what they need to do to be saved. That would be a, a reasonable um, application that flows directly from the text. Okay, people are starting to write in now. Brianna says it would be how to live amongst our fellow believers, being united in one spirit and living out the word. Yeah, there's definitely a sense of unity. So, you know, we're getting some snapshots about unity. And this raises a very interesting question of is what we see in the book of Acts, is that supposed to be replicatable for every local church or were these um, special situations that were unique in their historical context, not repeatable. In other words, like we don't expect to repeat Pentecost over and over and over again, or the resurrection over and over and over again. These are unique one time historical events. So there's this thorny question of, of what type of literature is the book of Acts? How much of it is supposed to be replicatable? by us as Christians. Let's look at some more comments. Allison, am I a believer? That's a good application. Do I have the Holy Spirit? If not, why not? If so, how am I living it out with my fellow believers to foster unity? I think those are some great questions to ask about the text. I love this one. God can defend the church against threats of unity. Yes, we certainly see him fighting for for that with um, the situation with Peter and John. So what I want to draw your attention to is that when we're thinking about applications, we want to go slow and we want to make sure it's directly flowing out of the text. Okay. So I think some other appropriate applications besides thinking about, you know, when we present the gospel, what are we inviting people into? What are we calling them to? Another potential application I can see there is thinking about um, noticing some of the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I think there could be, especially since it's repeated, that this was a concern. And then we also see this, this theme in the epistles of Paul collecting money from one church, taking it to another church. I think a legitimate application could possibly be um, you know, how can I notice the, the financial needs of those around me? Um, if I am a, a Christian who God has entrusted to steward great wealth, um, how can I leverage that wealth for the benefit of other Christians? I think that those are a couple of very legitimate applications that flow directly out of the text. Okay. All right. With that, now we've got some grounding under our belts. We've looked at the, the text. We've looked at the context. We've looked at the broader context and the, the big chunk, the immediate chunk. Um, we've talked a little bit about appropriate applications. Now we're going to watch a video from a couple of weeks ago from the Orange Curriculum. The first one that we're gonna watch is for grades one to four and their story is focusing on the events of Acts chapter 2. So we're going to um, look at that together. The Bible, 
It's 66 books of history, stories, letters, and poetry that fit together to form God's one big story. The epic adventure of how he created us and loves us so much that he made a way to rescue us. As we travel through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we discover people who met God and found their lives changed forever. Now, for an amazing story. Inspired by the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Okay, again, I want to call attention to the fact that I really appreciate the fact that I love this opening. I love how they're putting it in the context of God's big story. I love all of that. And again, this is for first through fourth graders. It's very visually appealing. They tell me very clearly, you know, what the Bible passage is that they're going to be looking at. All right, let's continue. Before Jesus returned to heaven, he told his friends to wait for special power from God's Holy Spirit. Yes, we'll do. Got it. Um, what? None of Jesus's friends were sure what to expect. But sure enough, as they were gathered together in Jerusalem, God sent his spirit as tongues of flame. Immediately, the believers were able to communicate in different languages. Peter even preached an amazing sermon to the crowds who had gathered in the city for the Feast of Pentecost. All of you must turn away from your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then your sins will be forgiven. That day, 3,000 people believed in Jesus. Through the power of God, the brand new church was off to an incredible start. Years later, a man named Luke described the early church like this. The believers studied what the apostles taught. They shared their lives together. They ate and prayed together. Everyone was amazed at what God was doing. They were amazed when the apostles performed many wonders and signs. Okay. That's a lot already, but Luke was so excited about the early church that he couldn't stop there. They shared everything they had. They sold property and other things they owned. They gave to anyone who needed something. Every day, they met together in the temple courtyard. They ate meals together in their homes. Their hearts were glad and sincere. They praised God. They were respected by all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. Okay, really quickly, what I appreciate about this is they're actually reading a chunk of scripture. I'm not quite as fond of the fact that they're using the reader's version of the NIV, but I can I can give that a pass. But I really appreciate the fact that they are reading the scripture. They are taking the time to read the scriptures. Now, I'm going to hope that the teachers have already had the kids open their Bibles they know where the book of Acts is. They know how to find chapter and verse. They know how to re read along, that they aren't just passively looking at the screen. I'm really going to hope that quality teachers will be building biblical literacy in their students as they do the story. Um, so that's a hope. Uh, but I do appreciate the fact that the story the retelling kept pretty close to the original text. And they did take the time to, to read out loud uh, the, the chunk for the students. Okay, let's continue. You notice a pattern? In everything they did, the early believers worked together. Let's take a closer look. 
The believers studied what the apostles taught. They learned about God together. Those who had been with Jesus, his closest friends, shared the things he had taught them with the new believers. They would have reminded each other of one of the most important things Jesus ever said. Here is my command. Love one another, just as I have loved you. Those very first Christians discovered something important. Love isn't just a feeling, it's something you do. Those believers prayed together often. Please God, give us the power of your spirit. Show us how to love others like you do. They knew that just a short time before, God's power had raised Jesus from the dead, and they knew they couldn't continue God's work without that power. The believers also ate together. Okay, I really appreciate the fact that they're tying acts, like kind of giving some context to it. They're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, raising Jesus from the dead, pointing the student back to the book of Luke. I appreciate that. I think that there's a some things to be praiseworthy with that. Allison's asking the question, wouldn't the NR, NIRV version be a good one for first through third? Yeah, it, it would be fine. I just, here's my judgment about this. This is an opinion, okay? This is not a, this, this is not a fact. This is an opinion of mine. I survived going to church in the, the era of the King James Version. Um, I didn't die. I didn't understand everything. I think that there's this premise that in order for children to learn, they have to understand everything. I'm not sure I believe that because I think that there's something to be said to calling children and understanding their faith that this is a, this, this is serious business, that everything doesn't have to be immediately accessible. Now, again, that's an opinion. Um, people can have a different opinion and that's fine, but I just am always wondering, well, at what point do we help them level up? Whereas if we started with the NIV, which is already written at like a sixth grade level or something, um, you know, if we started them there, would that be the end of the world? You know, and then we're, we're getting them familiar with the words and phraseology um, from the beginning. That's an opinion. So, all right, let's continue. Just caught a bunch of extra fish. Help yourselves. I made red lentils. Old family recipe. Me and my little granddaughter baked all the honey cakes to share. People who had a lot of food brought extra so that no one went hungry and everyone had enough. In fact, food wasn't the only thing the believers shared with each other. Some of the believers were well-to-do and had money and land, and they opened up their homes to people to meet and stay there. They even sold land and other things they owned so the money could be shared with all those who needed it. What do I need three extra robes for? You take this one. It'll keep you nice and warm. No one who was part of the early church went without food or shelter or clothing. Every day the believers met together. They shared everything about their lives, the good and the bad. My pet lamb is sick. I'm sorry. That's really sad. They discovered that when they told each other the hard things and prayed about it together, they could find joy, even when things didn't go their way. And no matter what happened, 
the believers praised God together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures. In everything they did, the believers in the early church worked together. Soon, people started to take notice. They saw that unlike the rest of the world, Jesus' followers valued kids and women and old people and poor people. They saw the love the believers had for each other and for outsiders too. And because of this, God added more and more new believers to the church every single day. Okay, this is not terrible. This is actually fairly close, I think, to the text. The retell I'm not a fan of retelling the story. I really would much prefer to orient the child to the text, have the child's eyes on the text, in context, helping to orient them through scripture. I think that's a much better approach than having them passively watch a cartoon or a, a woman retelling the story. But what she's saying is not terrible and it is not grossly or wildly inaccurate. Okay. So I want to, again, I want to affirm and commend, uh, commend the good where I see it. Okay. Now we're going to watch the application. So watch what happens here. For the early followers of Jesus, cooperation was a way of life. They ate together, they prayed together, they shared everything they had, and other people noticed and wanted to find out more. Wouldn't it be cool if we could work together like that? Maybe we can. It really starts with one person seeing another person and then asking, how can I help? Then they come together and then they start cooperating. Then someone else sees and joins in. And before you know it, they're making beautiful music. It may not come natural at first. That's why you have to practice. You need to make a habit of working together with other people. Open your eyes and really look for people who might need something. If you don't see anyone around you who needs anything, try asking, how can I help? You can cooperate and share with others just a little bit every day until it does come natural and it feels like a way of life. The way okay. All right. So what just happened there? Now, if you recall the theme for the month of March, uh, for orange, the word of the month was cooperation. And so they've using this um, incident in the book of Acts in Acts chapter two, this description of them sharing all things in common as being a launching point to continue the conversation about cooperation. So remember the question we want to ask is, was first, what does this text mean? Which the storyteller gave a fairly, accurate retelling. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to concede that. Again, I would have much preferred them just walking the children through the text step by step, but okay. But now what is the application of that? What do you hear her saying is the application of the text? Does it flow naturally out of the meaning of the text? This is the question 
that we need to think about. So you can write your comments in the chat. You can let me know your thoughts about it. So did you notice how they took a, a more of a minor theme in, in the biblical passage of them sharing all things in common and then attached it to this virtue or this ethic of cooperation. Now, again, the purpose of the Orange Curriculum is to create a values-driven curriculum. This is what they are trying to be up to. So they are going to take passages, selected passages in the Bible, and then build a narrative that reinforces that word of the month. And so for, for March, that's cooperation. The question is, is, is the application that she is bringing students through and walking them through, does that naturally flow out of the text? I am a skeptic of this. I, I think that that's to take a fairly minor point and then to turn it into this kind of secular cultural value. Now, cooperating is a good thing. I don't, I don't have anything inherently a beef with the idea of cooperation. But once the, the the gal comes on to give the application of the of the the lesson, we don't really hear much about the Holy Spirit or God working through, you know, us. It's just like, hey, look around at the people in your sphere. How can you help with other people's needs? Well, that kind of tangentially connects to the text, but not in an authentic, organic, deep structural way. It's to take a superficial aspect of the text and then immediately draw the child's attention to, here's what you can do. You can cooperate. Amber says this, the application part could have been on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I agree. And I love Mr. Rogers. I used to watch that every day with my kids when they were growing up. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it even more as an adult than I did as a child. But yes, you're absolutely right. Cooperation is a good value, helpful value. I could even make maybe make a case that it's a it's a value that's consistent with Christianity. But to to guide the child in such a way that we're going to look at this text and on um, the response to Pentecost on Act in Acts chapter two, and that what their main takeaway from that is is cooperation. I'm not I. I, I think that's that's setting them up for um, not good modeling with how to interpret scripture. Don says, no, it doesn't. It's watering down the amazing things that were happening in the early church. Yeah. Allison says, no, it doesn't flow. Nothing to do with salvation. Very good, Allison, because that's the key thrust of Acts chapter two. It's the salvation. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's this amazing one-time event. Nothing to do with believers helping one another, building unity. Cooperation is a different thing. It is a slightly different thing. It's a little sleight of hand that happens there. Um, Allison says, uh, cooperation is like what people have to do on a group project in school or that we don't do very well sometimes. Yes. Um, so what I want you to, to think about is applications are not a free for all. They should naturally flow out of the meaning of the text. But what happens to the child who grows up and that step never happens? 
And all that's modeled for them is these sort of virtue-driven, values-driven applications. What impression will be left with them as to what the value of scripture really is? I think it will be an impression that what scripture is about is about um, helping us be better people, helping us live a better life, helping us be kind. It's There's a sense in which many of these lessons from the Orange Curriculum are like 45 lessons all in the theme of being kind. It's It often seems to, even though the salvation component was present in the, the story retelling part of it, when we got to the application, it was almost like... It, it, the, the the story was just kind of a puppet to get us to really what they want the child to focus on, which is the cooperation. Okay. Maria says the story ended with the community singing praises to God. The application ended with a fancy version of chopsticks. Um, well, technically, yes. Um, Don says, this is a very insightful comment. Thank you, Don. It's behavioral therapy. And I think that there is a sense in which this value-driven approach that Orange is engaging is, is a form of behavioralism, but using the Bible is kind of a foundation for that. So, all right, I'm going to play the second clip now. So that was the, the clip from grades one to, to four. I'm now going to play the, the version of the same story for grades five and six. And I want you to observe, and you can write this in the comments, what they do differently here um, versus the, the elementary um, version. About how the early church had to work together and depend on each other daily. Wow, we can't wait to hear it. Take it away, Kellen. You can read about the beginnings of the early church in the book of Acts. It was written by a guy named Luke. Here's what he wrote. The believers studied what the apostles taught. They shared their lives together. They ate and prayed together. The early church cooperated with one another. And speaking of cooperation. Okay, what do you immediately notice right off the bat? I noticed two things. One is now we're in grades five and six. And Allison, you were asking earlier about the using the NI the NRIV, the, the reader's version for younger children. We're in fifth and sixth graders now. Shouldn't we be discipling them, orienting them to the adult version of the text? That was the immediate thing that, that I noticed. The second thing I noticed is that they only read like one or two verses. So I'm immediately like, I already got a couple of red flags here. Like, wait, we're going to dumb it down? for the fifth and sixth graders? Is that, is that what we're doing? Okay, let's, let's continue. Here are two sisters who are always trying to work together to make things better. Dee Dee and Jackie, the cheer squad. What up ladies? Oh, hey Kel. I got a question for you both. Okay, oh, what's up? As twin sisters and as members of a cheer squad, cooperating with one another has to be huge. Kale, we were working together even before we were born. So true. <laughs> but 
Do we always work together well? Nah. But we do live together, eat together, and pray together. Amen. Amen. The early church worked together in even more ways. Okay, so, so what, what are the cheerleaders supposed to be showing me if I'm in fifth or sixth grade? What is this? That they're twins and that they cooperate. Okay, so what are they putting at the very front before they've even really gotten into the text? They read one or two verses. But what are they fronting as the, the thing that they're going for is they're really hitting the cooperation. So unlike grades one to four, where cooperation was sort of an afterthought and they got through a good chunk of the text, when we move up to grades five and six, now we see the, the value-driven part of it being right out in front. It's the lead. Okay, let's keep going. Check this out. All the believers were together. They shared everything they had. They sold property and other things they owned. They gave to anyone who needed something. So the new believers, they lived in a time and a place where it was dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. They had, they had to depend on one another. They had to have each other's back. You know what? Come on, I mean, cheer squad. Let's bring it, Dee Dee. And kick it. Dee Dee, you got my back. Yeah, girl. And I know you got mine. Then let's show them how we do. Got my back, got my back. That's right, I know. Got my back, got my back. Got my back, that's right, I know. Got my back. Every day, we're sharing. Every day, we're caring. Need some dough? Here you go. Need a crib? I'm your sis. Got my back, got my back, that's right, I know. Got my back, got my back, got my back, that's right, I know. Got my back. Slain it as usual, ladies. The early believers shared together, prayed together, worshiped together. And guess what? People noticed. Listen to this. Their hearts were glad and sincere. They praised God. They were respected by all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. People saw how the early followers of Jesus treated one another and how they made it a habit of working together. And it made those people want to be a part of it. I wonder if that would happen today if we made a habit of cooperation. What do you think, cheer squad? So it wasn't terrible that he, he did have some content about the early church, about how they looked out for each other, how they provided for each other's needs. That, that's great. That was about 30 seconds of content. And now we're going back to the cheerleaders to focus more on cooperation, I'm guessing. So let's um, let's see what happens. Give me a C. C. Give me two O's. O O's. Give me a P. P. Give me a E. E. Give me a R. R. Give me a A. A. Give me a T. I. O. N. Cooperation. That's right. We got it. That's what we do. We're here to help you see it through. You want to co-op now. That's the way. So make. Let's give it up for the cheer squad. Thank you so much, ladies. 
and I'm pretty sure that will be in my head all day long. Man, that cheer squad is ridiculous. Yes, they are. And they also make an excellent point. The new believers who started the church were able to make such a huge difference because they made a habit of cooperating every single day. Which is, which is something we should all be aiming for. So true. I'll see you guys next time. And hey, thanks for what you do. Right back at you, Kellen. You know, I just thought of someone else on our show. Okay, so that's the Bible lesson. It was a lot shorter than the other one. Um, didn't have a ton of content, but they really did a, a, a job of hitting the, the word of the month which was cooperation. So, all right, so we're gonna do the same thing. Um, did they accurately convey the big idea of the text itself? Kinda, for a few seconds. I'm not sure that the kids would come away from that as the takeaway. Does the application naturally flow out of the meaning of the text itself? I'm not convinced of that. Um, so I think that this is difficult because there's really no tie-in to the power of the Holy Spirit, salvation, Pentecost. It's really just taking this very minimalist approach to the text and then immediately jumping to what the 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 kind of application that they want to draw the child's attention to, which is cooperation, which cooperating doesn't actually require the Holy Spirit. Like you don't have to have the Holy Spirit in order to cooperate with somebody on a group project in your classroom or to um, feed the poor. Like there's nothing distinctively Christian about that idea. And so Here's a great comment from Chrissy. Cooperating with what? With whom? It's like the phrase, just believe. Believe in what? Believe in whom? Yes. Are lessons like this how some people come to equate the gospel with mere community service? Okay. Uh, I think this is where I'm taking this conversation because my question is, is what happens to a child who is discipled week after week like this. And I've been trying to show through the lessons in March as a microcosm of the orange approach of how they are discipling over a million students a week in the Bible. I can see how if a student is discipled this way week after week, year after year, that they would come to believe that Christianity is basically a, a religion about making the world a better place and community service. That's, that's what Christianity is ultimately about. Um, I think that when I'm seeing the number of deconstruction stories that are happening, and I hear people who are allegedly deconstructing away from the faith, I'm becoming less and less convinced that many of these people actually were ever exposed to real Christianity. 
And I'm starting to wonder if what we've been teaching our kids for the last 10 to 15 years is part of that. And I'm not putting that 100% on orange, but I'm looking at this highly influential curriculum as an example of this is the, 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 the kind of way that we are discipling our kids. Are we requiring them to actually open the scriptures and walk through the text? Do they even know the books of the Bible? Do they know chapter and verse? I'm not sure that people who are walking away from the faith, if they're under the age of 20, actually were ever in the faith, actually ever were exposed to the correct faith. As Lori is saying here, does it become the social gospel? I, I think that this makes children quite vulnerable to thinking that that is what Christianity is about. It is a more social gospel approach because I don't actually need the Holy Spirit to cooperate or be nice. I don't need God to do that. I can be that kind of good without God. I think that it's possible that curriculum like this and the way that we are discipling our kids in, in many situations, again, not putting this all on orange, just using this as a microcosm of what's happening. I think Linda's right on the money and saying, this will grow our kids up to be therapeutic moral deists. Yeah, we're, they have a view of God that's really like a glorified counselor that wants them to be happy, be at peace, and help them make the world a better place. This creates a vulnerability in children for all to believe all kinds of false doctrine that they aren't even aware that they're believing. They think they've been catechized into the historic Christian faith. And I'm becoming increasingly skeptical after watching a lot of child Sunday school content. I'm not sure that we are actually catechizing them into the historic Christian faith. Okay. So I've been getting a lot of letters of like, well, what would you do differently? Well, if they're in the fifth and sixth grade, here's one, here's an idea. Have them actually bring their Bibles, open their Bibles, read their Bibles out loud and discuss their Bibles, discuss what's in the text. This, this is not complicated. We do this every week in our home church. The kids are all with us and we sit there and have a discussion. Trust me, a fifth and sixth grader is very capable of reading through scripture. They might not understand everything, but they kind of know that that's okay, that they don't understand everything a lot of the time. But they have got to be getting in scripture. We need to be teaching them the books of the Bible in order. We need to teach them the sword drills, how to find chapter and verse. Remember old-fashioned sword drills? How to get there, how to get there quick. We need to create an environment of learning. A church should never be merely a school, but it should never be less than a school. Why do we think that our children are capable of taking AP classes in, in high school, but they can't learn substantive, difficult, tricky topics at church? Why do we treat our children in, like infants chronically? Can somebody explain this to me? Why we infantilize our Christian children? 
I don't understand this. They are capable of so much more. Maybe we need to be less curriculum dependent and and getting our kids in the scripture. But I'm starting to wonder if the reason we're so curriculum dependent is because many of the teachers aren't biblically literate. And so we have to use curriculum as a way to help the teachers. I don't know. I, I don't have all these answers, but I am just trying to sound the alarm and ask some questions and get more conversations going. Because what we are doing to our kids, this isn't right. This isn't healthy. This, this is not good. And we cannot think that we're going to have lasting impact in the culture if this is how the superficial way that we are going to disciple our kids. I, I, don't, I don't think that, that this is what we, we should be doing. So I want to end today with Alexa's question. Uh, Alexa wrote to me earlier. She's a follower of the ministry. And um, I'm going to end here with her question. She says, I would love it if you could help us think through how concerned we should be if our church is using Orange, if we are discipling our kids at home and Sunday school is only one hour a week. I'm trying to decide if I should just keep my kids with me in big church. I am kind of starting to lean this direction. You know, I think there's something to be said. Um, When I was growing up, I learned how to behave in church. It's amazing now that we think that children can't just sit through church and we have to entertain them constantly with devices and, and all this stuff. When I was a kid, I sat in church. I had to sit still in church. I had to be quiet in church and I didn't die. And somehow I was able to do it. And there wasn't all this entertainment. I was socialized into sitting in church. I think there's something to be said for that. I think there's something to be said for possibly even, you know, um, creating a culture where everything is always geared to the child's attention span all the time. It gives children the message that their attention span is what rules the world. That's not healthy. We need to be teaching our children, you know, how to read um, and how to read hard things. And if all we're doing is worried about how we're going to entertain them and keep them from being bored, that's not healthy in a church context. Jesus says that he's the word. He's the logos of God. But we are raising children that don't have strong reading skills, and we want them to engage deeply with their faith on very complicated topics. I'm not sure that this is going to have good fruit over the long haul if we are gearing everything around the child's needs. Um, here we go. A couple final comments as we close out. The new State of the Bible USA 2022 came out this week. This is from the Bible Memory Coach. Biblical literacy continues to decline. This type of teaching will not help. I tend to agree with you. Allison says, because the parents aren't there either. Parents want the easy way out. Oh, Allison. I'm not sure we're ready for that conversation. Because see, this discipleship is what should be happening in the home. Church should be a supplement. It is one hour a week. 
maybe two or three hours a week if your kid has a midweek program for Awana or something. Um, but I think that uh, this is this is not healthy. We are not on a good trajectory here. And I'm just simply here to try to sound the alarm to say we need to have deeper conversations about how we are teaching our children using poor modeling for them, poor Bible interpretation and application is not the way. This is just not the way. Okay. Um, I hope that you've found this video helpful. I do look forward to your feedback. Make sure that you are subscribed to my YouTube channel. You can find me at Theology Mom. Follow me on Facebook uh, at Theology Mom, also the Center for Biblical Unity. And um, let me know your feedback about these teachings. Again, I'm going to do one or two more related to um, teaching children and that sort of thing. And just trying to help us think about um, what are we doing? Let's be a little bit more self-aware. Thank you so much for watching and we will see you soon. Good night and God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.